0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review.
1: Three Martinis coming up. Well, the good news is we're here and we're also very (laughs) glad that you're here for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. The bad news is we have no good martinis. We definitely have a bad and we think we have two crazies, but the middle one is also pretty bad. It's pretty sinister. uh, And it shows you how close we came to having uh, somebody who definitely doesn't belong in the White House in the White House uh, about a generation ago. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, uh, Jim, uh, as you focused on quite a bit today in the morning jolt, once again, the word police are out for the Biden administration, which usually means We've got an economic report coming that they don't like very much. Remember when we uh, were told that inflation had peaked a couple of months ago, and then it bumped up again in May, and then it bumped up again in June, and KJP, the uh, new White House press secretary, said, "Eh, that's backwards-looking data. Why are we focusing on that as people's wallets are empty because everything's more expensive. Now, of course, uh, we're expected uh, this week, I think it's Thursday, you said in the jolt today, Jim, that we're supposed to get the GDP numbers for the second quarter. So we'll find out if the economy grew or contracted in those three months from April through June. And we know that we had negative economic growth in the first quarter, so if we get that again, we're technically in a recession, which a lot of people have already forecasted, including former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. So Janet Yellen, the current Treasury Secretary, was on Meet the Press on Sunday, and Chuck Todd threw that very point at her. But Jim, you got to see when you got other indicators that are kind of strong. That's eh, not really a recession anymore.
0: And many economists uh, expect. Second quarter GDP to be negative. First quarter GDP was negative. So we could see that happen and that will be closely watched. But I do want to emphasize what a recession really means is a broad based contraction yeah. in the economy. And even if that number is negative, we are not in a recession now. And um, I, I would, you know, warn we should be um, not not characterizing that as a recession. I understand
1: that, but you're splitting hairs. I mean, if the technical definition is two quarters of contraction, you're saying that's not a recession? That's not the tech... No?
0: That's not the technical definition.
1: Jim, that's been the definition of a recession for as long as I can remember, going all the way back to George H.W. Bush you know, in 1991-92, when we were told how horrible the economy was. Uh, if, if economic growth is negative for two consecutive quarters, it's a recession. And then the talking point came out again today on CNN. Here's Brian Deese uh, talking just like KJP talked about inflation. We have real global challenges here in the short term. We've got to navigate our way through them, but we have to do so without giving up all our economic gains. That's going to be our focus. And I think that we need to train that focus on that rather than on sort of technical debates about backward looking data. Technical debates about backward looking data. Don't look at that, Jim, because that would be bad for us.
0: Backwards looking data as opposed to all of that frontwards looking data, (laughs) you know, like it's like you just need to turn it around or something like that. Hearing all of these arguments about the technical and what the true definition of a recession is, no true Scotsman would call this a recession, Greg. Um, I'm reminded of one of the many lessons from the cinematic classic Wayne's World when Cassandra, played by Tia Carrere, is with Rob Long's, uh, not Rob Long. (laughs) What a wonderful way to talk about our, our usual guest host, Rob Lowe uh playing the you know yuppie uh, student uh, recording executive who's so smooth and just utterly insufferable and she says oh i don't think i've ever had french champagne before and you know rob lowe being the most you know smug guy in the world says, "Oh, actually all champagne is french it's named after the region otherwise it's simply sparkling white wine americans of course don't recognize the convention so it becomes that thing of calling all of their sparkling wine champagne even though by definition they're not and I think Wayne and Garth kind of roll their eyes at this. And it's just the most, you know, ugh, oh, you know, oh, well, actually, technically, that's not what you think it is. You know, um, you know, but I feel like we are being told, Greg, that unless it's from the French region of recession, it is not technically a recession. It's simply sparkling widespread economic hardship. Uh, look, <laughs> the whole morning jolt today is about if you say to people, what's a recession? They'll usually probably say something like the economy's shrinking. Uh, Or maybe they'll just say it's economic hard times. Maybe they would say the two consecutive quarters of uh, shrinkage in the GDP. Maybe they'll use that technical definition. I don't think there are that many people who would say, well, many think that it's actually uh, two consecutive quarters of shrinking GDP. But the real definition comes from this uh, official government board of economists, distinguished and all-important National Bureau of Economic Research, no, by the way, there is, you know, like technically they're the ones who make the official ruling, I guess you could say, they're kind of like the replay booth for the economists in the NFL. Um, but what basically, it does take them a while to get around to make those decisions and official announcements. I went and I looked it up back in 2008. Now, remember, Lehman Brothers collapsed, the stock market collapsed. All of a sudden, everybody's got massive left. People knew in 2008, oh, my God, we're, we're our, not just a recession, we're entering the Great Recession. Well, in December 2008, the National Bureau of Economic Research said, indeed, we are in a recession and it began in January. In other words, the economy had peaked in December, 2007. And that technically what was the recession was beginning a year earlier, but they couldn't make that call until December. So in other words, this is a Biden administration way of kicking the can down the road. Well, even if you think it's a recession, it's not officially a recession until the National Bureau of Economic Research comes back with a conclusion. And they won't do that till after the midterm elections. Most people would say, what's a recession? Oh, it's when, you know, the the economy really stinks. Now, does the Biden administration have a qualified defense? Like, but unemployment is 3.8%. Yeah, yeah, that's really unusual. You don't usually see that when there's a recession. But the other point that I honed in on on today's uh, morning jolt is that they keep emphasizing and look at all the job openings. And they're right. There are 11.3, as as of the last uh, official numbers, 11.3 million unfilled jobs in the United States. But I don't know if that's necessarily a sign of economic strength. And I don't know if that's the good news that they think it is. One is that we've had these unfilled jobs for a long time now. Um, it's been, you know, north of 10 million, I think like north of 11 million for probably the better part of a year. And the second thing is, is that like, well, you know, wait a minute, if the is you know, if unemployment's so low, why is the GDP not getting bigger? Well, if you have these 11 million unfilled jobs, an unfilled job doesn't do anything, right? They're not, the only thing it generates is a, is a want ad uh it doesn't you know it's not a spot on the assembly line helping the widgets go it's not producing goods and services it's not driving the truck it's not it's not doing anything so it's not adding to gross domestic product which is one of the reasons you might be seeing smaller GDP growth than you expect even though unemployment is low so you know I, I think part of the this is another case of the administration talking itself into believing the economy is in better shape than it is and you know. A lot of it. you go through this, and again, maybe your neck of the woods, dear listeners, is different, but I still see a lot of help wanted, please be patient, we're short-staffed. Um, you go into a store, and there's one register open, and there's a long line, uh, which, though, by the way, you start seeing more and more you know, uh, self-checkout counters and stuff like that. Um, it just feels like there's long waits, and, and there's just all these different ways. All of this, by the way, adds to inefficiencies in the economy. You go out to run a bunch of errands and all of a sudden you can't do it because there's, you know, these places are out of stock or they're they're short-staffed or we're going to have to wait. None of this helps the economy grow or get you work more efficiently, work better. So there's that factor. But beyond that, this all adds up to basically the administration trying to tell Americans, I know you feel lousy, but trust us, you're doing great. (laughs) But they're not. And the reason they're not is that inflation is 9.1% and it keeps getting up higher and higher. The administration keeps saying, oh, we think it's peaked and then the next month comes out even worse. And people, the other thing is like, if this was a, if we saw inflation only in car price, new car prices or house prices, Well, some people move a lot, or some people might buy a new car every couple of years. But generally, that's not a frequent thing. But on groceries and gas prices, and you know, the administration likes to say, "Oh, gas prices are down, sixty cents a gallon or seventy cents a gallon." Yeah, but that means it's gone from like five bucks nationally to four thirty. Four thirty is still pretty darn expensive. So it's the the administration is in this desperate spin state of, "Oh no, you're doing much better than you think. Don't let the don't let the media fool you into thinking you're doing well." But everybody can feel it and sense it when they're at the cash register, and the bag of groceries it costs twice as much as it did a year ago. So it's just this you want to bang your head against the wall because there are certain things you can try to spin people on, but how they're doing economically is not one of them. So um, I don't envy the administration. I think they'd be better if they were more blunt about it, but uh, they're going to keep telling us. I don't know, it may feel like a recession. And as you look at your family budget and as you look at your paychecks and as you look at all your expenditures, it might feel like it's really bad. But trust us, it's technically not a recession, or at least not yet.
1: That dastardly media, Jim. When will they give the Democrats a fair shake? It is terrible, you know. Unbelievable. <laughs> Particularly
0: C- CNBC.
1: <laughs> <You> know, the <laughs> yes. business press has always been, you know. Yes, yes. Them and their arbitrary official definitions of everything. Uh, just, uh, yeah, I don't know how they're trying to. to to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. In that same clip, Deese is saying, what we've really been successful at is putting more money in everybody's pocket because wages are up, which they are, technically. But uh, when inflation's at 9%, (laughs) and by some calculations even worse, um, you're not feeling that. You actually have less money in your pocket. But good try, Brian. Maybe next time. All right, Jim. Meanwhile, over on Capitol Hill, uh, might be a good idea to focus on the economy and soaring inflation and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, Americans are good first going to need their legislators to focus on issues that matter and ease the economic pain we're all feeling.
0: Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world's standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world.
1: NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop those rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like S-2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, let's go right back to yesterday's edition of Meet the Press, which also featured former Vice President Al Gore. You and I have talked so much over the years about how much we miss Al Gore, and we wish we heard from him more, especially on the issues that he cares about most, like climate change. No, actually, we don't. We don't miss Al Gore, and we uh, wish we didn't have to talk about him again today. But he was making the rounds because, you know, Jim, it was hot. Uh, the last couple of weeks here in the middle of July. Who would have thought that could have happened? But mainly because before he got COVID, or at least was diagnosed with COVID, Biden was uh, standing in front of the the landfill up there in uh, New England talking about how he's about to declare a climate emergency. So uh, the networks decided to scramble and find Al Gore. Well, on both channels, and maybe it was on other shows besides those two, I don't know, but he trotted out this really disgusting analogy uh, about how he considers what he labels as climate deniers uh, to another horrific story that we've talked about a lot in recent weeks.
0: You know, the climate deniers uh, uh, are really in some ways similar to all of those uh, almost 400 law enforcement officers in Uvalde, Texas, who were waiting outside an unlocked door uh, while the children were being massacred. They heard the screams, they heard the gunshots, and Uh, Nobody stepped forward and God bless those families who've suffered so much. And law enforcement officials tell us that's not typical of what uh, law enforcement usually does. And confronted with this global emergency, what we're doing with our inaction and failing to walk through the door and stop the killing uh, is not typical of what we are capable of as human beings.
1: How thoroughly disgusting uh, to make that comparison. Look, just because uh, you want to give the government more power and take rights and money and freedom away from the American people uh, in the name of climate change uh, is not the same at all of people standing around while fourth graders get murdered. Jim, uh, I've never been persuaded by Al Gore. A lot of what he said in his documentary has already been proven not true because he said horrible things would have happened by now. uh, And now he's making disgusting comparisons like this. Well,
0: Greg, I, I'm going to correct you on one point. I do miss having Al Gore around in the public eye more often, okay. mostly because it gave you opportunities to do an impression of him. And that's really <laughs> funny and a really good impression. Uh, look, think back, I mean, Al Gore is among those who, in the past, have compared climate deniers, the phrase he prefers, to Holocaust deniers. Mm-hmm. Another comparison that I think most of us would find uh, out of bounds, out of line, tasteless, um, a certain moral blindness to, to you know accuse put someone who doubts Al Gore's assessments on par with someone who insists the Holocaust didn't happen and in this case look you know what with the compelling is just kind of the latest update of that kind of argument of if you disagree with me you are the worst kind of human being because you look at the world and you see things differently and it's really for a bunch of us it is not merely a matter of you know, the time is always changing the question is what's causing it and how bad is it a bit. And what is the appropriate response to it? Uh, the you know, Lots of folks on the left, and Al Gore is probably the most preeminent architect of this style of argument, is to wait for a natural disaster. And because there, there's always that happening at some time, whether it's a forest fire or flooding or earthquakes or hurricanes or, you know, something terrible happens somewhere. And they say, look at this natural disaster. This is clearly a result of climate change. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, or, or it's very often, very often debatable. People are like, oh my goodness, these, these high temperatures. Yes, it is summer. Traditionally, it it's much, gets much warmer then. But then if you say, okay, I, I recognize that putting more carbon into the atmosphere is likely to have some sort of impact on the climate, on the weather patterns, then it turns into a question of what do you do about it? And very often the argument is something, you know, look at these natural disasters, this is terrible, the climate is changing, we need to do something. And the answer is usually vote for me, buy my book, watch my documentary or give me money. None of these things by themselves will actually change the climate. It will make somebody richer. It will make somebody more powerful, but it will not necessarily change the climate. And then if you really get into the nuts and bolts of this stuff, you get into some much tougher questions. of like, okay, I'm an American. I'm concerned about the climate, but we actually have been declining our carbon emissions for a very long time. This is because we're shifting away from coal. A lot of it's going over to natural gas with the environmentalists hate it just as much because it's still a fossil fuel fact they argue it's not natural at all actually oil is natural as well everything that comes like in the pacific coast the earth is actually spitting oil at us they have natural seepages people like me would like to put caps on that or maybe maybe let's put a little platform out there and get that oil and put it to good use but no no no, we can't do that Uh, but even if we accepted that we're actually doing a pretty good job of reducing our carbon emissions what do you want to do about china what do you want to do about india we have very limited ability to influence what they do on a whole bunch of issues, not just on environmental issues. And we would effectively be telling the Chinese and Indians, we want you to live at a lower standard of living than you've been able to build up to. And there's a good question, follow up question to Al Gore what price do you think Americans should pay for gasoline? You know, I understand we said, well, Americans should be shifting over to a- electric cars. Okay, but electric cars are really expensive. So, one, what do you say to those families who cannot afford to move over to an electric car? Two, where do you think electricity for all those electric cars comes from? But three, like right now, as we've been, as we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, you gasoline prices have been really a record high this summer. Does Al Gore think that's a bad thing or a good thing? I think if you loaded up with sodium pentothal, he'd say yes, actually, it's a good thing, and I want them to go higher. And I think if people heard that from Al Gore, people would say, "To heck with you, buddy," or other words, because my life is hard enough when gas is. 4 30 a gallon or $5 a gallon or something like that. I can't afford to get to work. I can't afford to run around and shop groceries. Everything's more expensive. Why are you trying to make my life harder on me? But we don't get those kind of questions. So instead, we get to go, oh, but by asking those questions, Greg, I'm sure in Al Gore's mind, we're just like those officers at Uvalde.
1: Gosh, he's just so pathetic. And he's just he's still so robotic. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating to watch both uh, appearances yesterday where it seems like he's really struggling to come up with an example off the top of his head and then the language is exactly the same as he as he hems and haws his way through this thing that he just thought up as, as the question was asked. He's so patently fake about everything. And Jim, I know there's this constant push about electric vehicles. We get it from Buttigieg all the time. I don't want a stupid electric vehicle for a number of reasons. It's way too expensive. Uh, the electricity still has to come from somewhere. So once it's more than just a novelty, you're really going to be taxing the grid because uh, you know when you fill up with gas, you don't have that issue, and you have to take so long to recharge it every two, three hundred miles, that long road trips become more of a total nuisance than anything else. If you think uh, high gas prices are annoying for a long road trip, which I'm about to find out here not too long from now, uh, try waiting around all that time if they're working, if you can get one. (laughs) You know, once there's demand for this stuff, it's going to be a total nightmare.
0: I was going to say, if you never want to go on a road trip ever and you always have enough time to park it, Find a charging station, either it's in your house or near your house or something like that. And you have time to spare, then maybe it makes sense. If you are, if you those if that does not describe your life, you should read this, this hilarious, you know, kind of diary of someone who tried to drive from New Orleans to Chicago and back. It was in the Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago. And it was very funny, but also very illuminating of the difficulty of finding charging stations if you are on a road trip. And also how a lot of apparently maybe the person got a lemon, but the recharging time and pace and the drain and the battery. All that stuff was a little bit worse than was advertised. And, you know, maybe it's just a bad car or maybe these things have been overhyped. It's your choice. You know, dear consumers, do whatever you want. But uh, forewarned is forearmed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't want it. All right, Jim, on to our second crazy martini here now. And it's uh, deja vu. Forgive us if you've heard this before. But this might be the year that Democrats break through in Texas. Yeah, I know. We heard that with Wendy Davis. In the 2014 governor's race against Greg Abbott, she didn't even get to 40%. We heard it again with Beto O'Rourke against Ted Cruz. He got pretty close, helped some other folks win elections they probably otherwise wouldn't have in a in a Democratic-leaning year, but he didn't win. But it was a good enough uh, showing to get him into the presidential race. And Then he totally flopped and uh, started cussing on stage about taking away your guns and everything as he tried to present himself as the most progressive candidate. Didn't work. And now he's back running for governor of Texas. And here we go with MSNBC or NBCNews.com, I guess. Once again, a buzz is growing around Beta O'Rourke, the one-time presidential candidate aiming aiming to become Texas's first Democratic governor in more than three decades, has cut Republican incumbent Greg Abbott's polling lead in half. He is coming off a historic fundraising period. As we know, that makes all the difference, Jim, by his campaign's count. O'Rourke has already signed up 79,000 volunteers to make phone calls and knock on doors on Election Day. For every fresh note of optimism, though, there's a note of caution. Republicans have long ruled Texas and have made inroads with Latino voters. Abbott remains a formidable fundraiser in his own right, and O'Rourke has come tantalizingly close before. His 2018 bid to unseat Senator Ted Cruz turned him into a White House prospect, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But uh, Jim, he's embarked on a 49-day road trip across the state, 5,600 miles. He got a uh, turnout in Midland that was 400 people, and that was more than people showed up for him in 2018. So they really, really think they've got a chance here. They also believe that the issues are on their side from Roe v. Wade to the Uvalde shooting, which we've already referenced from the Al Gore story, uh, to the energy problems with their own grid, their ERCOT, uh, which, of course, they had big problems with last winter. And I think they've had some problems there this summer as well. So Abbott is still ahead. It's probably a little bit closer than you and I would like. But I think the point in the story about the Latinos shifting even more so in Texas to the Republicans is going to be good news for Greg Abbott. I think the energy issue is the biggest problem for uh, for Abbott that might keep Beto close. But the idea that in this environment, that this is going to be the year that the Democrats break through in Texas, uh, you just have to laugh.
0: One, you've heard this year after year. But, I, you know, as you're going through all the recent coverage, Greg, particularly The New York Times, Are they writing about his sweat again? (laughs) That was the big thing that kept coming up in 2018, particularly in the summer. It's summer in Texas; everyone sweats. This is not a a remarkable new—you know—it's not like Ted Cruz was born without sweat glands or something. Oh, that's oh, he's gonna be sweating. He's working so hard. Actually, I'll give a little bit of credit. or work in, in all of his campaigns. You know, he has done a lot, he, he does a lot of events. He, he, you know, tries to get out there as much as possible. He tries to out-hustle his opponents. That's how he knocked off a Democratic incumbent uh, in his El Paso city council race and in his uh, Democratic district house race down in El Paso. Credit words too. He does work hard. I'll give him that. But Texas is still a pretty darn red state and we shouldn't be surprised by that. But let's like, think back and recognize. Back in 2018, a very good year for Democrats, Beto O'Rourke came within three points against Ted Cruz. That helped Democrats down ticket. And he was, to his credit, probably the most credible contender the Democrats had had in Texas in you know, two decades uh, since George W. Bush appeared on the scene. That, that's, a pretty, you know, that's a feather in his cap, but that's not the same as winning. So now you look at the polling in the state and you know Greg Abbott, the incumbent Republican, you know, is the, in the are Republic are the real clear politics average, he's up by six. And, you know, you look at the last couple of polls up by five, up by six, up by eight, up by five. Is it closer than Republicans would like? Yeah, sure. But remember, you know, I was within three last time. And I think a lot of people forget 2020, you know, Donald Trump won the state, but he won the state about 52% to 46.4% for Biden. Texas is not as ruby red as it used to be. It's getting crazy. You know, it's a big suburban state. And if you are not appealing to, the suburban soccer moms, then you are probably going to alienate some voters. Now, I don't know if this is necessarily a flaw of Abbott or there's a lingering resentment for Uvalde. I do think that Abbott going out and getting the bad information and doing that first briefing that was all too flattering to the Uvalde police department. Again, it's not Abbott's fault, but something like that is gonna give, give you at least one or two bad news cycles. I think Abbott is likely to win. I think Abbott's probably likely to win by about the margin we're seeing here um i think you know the other thing i wrote a couple of days ago was noticing remember when you know Beto overworked you know interrupted the press conference and he yelled at him this is on you and, and all that stuff um you look at the polling averages before you look at the polling averages after it didn't really affect the race one way or the other which he kind of to me says you know, a lot of democrats oh you know he's speaking for the parents he's speaking for the anguish of texans and, and a lot of republicans myself included were like oh, uh, that that really comes across as crass and narcissistic and making it about you kind of was a wash didn't really have any impact at all so I think considering the consistency of this is it possible something happens in the next couple of months that changes Texas Texans attitudes towards Greg Abbott I I suppose it's possible but I also think it's very likely Beto O'Rourke has hit his ceiling for a Democrat that is less than a majority and he's probably going to be at one you know at the beginning of this cycle Dan McLaughlin my colleague wrote about figures who are really on their last legs. So basically, if they don't win in 2022, they'll kind of be expected to fade and they'll become a joke. Uh, Stacey Abrams is on that list. And I think Beto O'Rourke is there too. Uh, coming up short against, you know, Ted Cruz. Okay, you can give him some respectable, you know, respectable defeat on that one. His presidential campaign flamed out and he looked ridiculous. And, uh, you know, he looks, uh, uh, it, it's interesting because I remember you know, his cam- presidential campaign was flaming out. He was doing an interview with Seth Meyers, and everyone was pointing out that this guy who was, you know, Lone Star Jesus back as a Senate candidate was not doing very much as a presidential candidate. And Seth Meyers had asked him a question along those lines, and uh, bit of a work, he kind of chuckled and said, <laughs> ah, you know, where's Ted Cruz when I need him? <laughs> and Ted Cruz responded, I'm in the Senate, where are you? And I think that's kind of a really useful indicator. Like, yeah, horseshoes and hand grenades are the only places where close is, you know, close, is close enough to a win.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I would not miss Beto, uh, assuming he loses uh, if he were to go away. But, Jim, the donors keep pumping money into his uh, his campaigns that, that most likely aren't going anywhere. So I kind of I kind of like having that. Thank
0: goodness they're not putting it in some place where Democrats could actually use it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, go, Beto, go.
1: Yeah. Like I said, I think the biggest uh, liability for Abbott right now is the problems they're having with ERCOT, their own uh, Texas-wide power grid. But if you dig deeper into it, one of the reasons they're having uh, big problems with it is because uh, a huge chunk of it supposedly is coming from renewables. And guess what, Jim? It's not enough. Shocking.
0: The wind isn't blowing (laughs) enough in Texas. Beto's trying to do what he can to generate more hot
1: air. Boom. Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow.
0: See you tomorrow, Greg.
1: Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter, and you still have some time to get your questions in. If you weren't with us on Friday, we're going to be doing a special Ask Jim and Greg episode here coming up soon. So, at least for the next couple of days, go ahead and get those questions in. Anything on politics, on the midterms, 2024, something we've talked about on the show, uh, football, movies, whatever we've talked about, and you think we would have a, a fun response on uh, or, a, or an intelligent response on, please let us know those too. Uh, you can direct message me at dateline underscore. Or DC. And of course, follow Jim on Twitter, too. He's at Jim Garrity. And more than anything, join us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Former DEA agent in charge, Derek Maltz, joins me to explain how deadly poisons are flooding across our open border and devastating our country and our young people. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Derek also lays out exactly how China is working with Mexican drug cartels to wage asymmetrical warfare against our nation and how our government refuses to deal with the threat seriously. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.